Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, these are powerful words, words of assurance, words of gospel hope and reminder today. And Lord, I just know that even here in the midst of this group of people, Lord, there are are those who are hurting. There are those who wonder about your love. There are those who feel separated from it. God, I pray that you would grant grace even today to remind them of your nearness. Lord, to show them your persistence and perseverance in caring for them. And to help them to see that in their circumstances, in their weaknesses, in their failures, in their sin, Lord, they're not separated from your love. So, Lord, we pray that you would make these words clear to us, not just in their meaning for our minds, but, Lord, that we would treasure them with our hearts. We would trust them with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I was talking with one of our young brothers here at Pillar yesterday who had a baseball game. And uh, he had a game that morning, and and we were were together in the afternoon. I wanted to know how the game went. So I asked him, and... uh, And he said, oh, it wasn't good. We got mercy ruled. Now, if you haven't been around youth sports recently, uh, when you get mercy ruled, the other team hasn't just beat you, right? They haven't just beat you badly. The victory has been so complete that they stop the game before its normal conclusion because they want to show mercy on the losing team as to not further embarrass them. That's what it means, apparently, to be mercy-ruled. It's a victory that is so strong that they had to invent a new word to describe it. Well, the heart of today's passage and the central focus of this sermon today is found in Paul's definitive answer to a string of questions in verses 31 through 37. After asking six rhetorical questions about whether anything can interrupt God's saving victory in our life, The Apostle Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That statement in verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, provides our main idea this morning for our sermon. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
If you look at verse 37, if you look at verse 37, you see this phrase, we are more than conquerors uh, there. And what I would want you to know as we think about this and think about it centrally as, as it's going to inform the rest of what we talk about today is that it's actually one Greek word. We, you know, in English, we kind of have a whole phrase, we are more than conquerors there. It's actually one Greek word. It's the word huper nikomen. Huper nikomen. It is made up of two pieces. A main root, nikomen, which is the Greek word for victory and the inspiration for our brand Nike. Okay, so it's this word Nike, right, which means victory. And, and so, but, to, but, but Paul doesn't just use the word nikao or nikomen here to say we are conquerors through him who loved us. To say the, to say the victory of the gospel uh, is this victorious and that we're conquerors was not enough for Paul. He, what he does actually here is he adds, he adds an intensifying prefix onto the front of it. And he says, no, we're huper nikomen. We are uber victors. This is our prefix, right? To say something is uber, it's greater. Another, another prefix that we've built off that is hyper. We are hyper victorious. You know, when we think of, uh, of needing to take something and strengthen and intensify it so that we wouldn't just say that we're victorious. He says we are hyper victorious in Christ. Interestingly, it's the only place in the New Testament that this word exists. The significance is that Paul is, is saying something important as he ends this, this section of the book of Romans where he wants us to understand the implications of the gospel and all the riches that we've received in Christ. Uh, the work of Jesus' salvation on our behalf in the gospel means that a victory is being played out in our life that is so complete that when Christ is finished with his work, we will need a new word to describe it. Uper nikomen. We are more than conquerors. Jesus' mercy ruled our opponents, and we are the recipients of a uper nikao, more than conquering victory. So that is the center of this text. This is what we're to, to think about. And the rest of the passage just really kind of fills out the meaning. Everything else that's being said is so that Paul can make this meaningful that we are more than conquerors. And he does this really in the passage, you might have noticed, through five rhetorical questions that he asks to kind of bring out in detail what kind of is God in the works of completing for us? What is so beyond victory that is going on? And what are some of the ways that we can see it in the gospel? How is the gospel of Jesus Christ a promise of a more than conquering victory for you today. That is what this passage is really about. And so through these five rhetorical questions that Paul asks here, we see five ways that the gospel imparts a decisive victory to the one who puts their faith in Christ. That's what we're going to see, and that is what we'll spend the remainder of our time on. But before we do that, I think it's important for us to answer a question. Why do we need passages like this with such assurance because that's what's going on Paul is giving he, he's giving us a passage with incredible assurance to us of God's inseparable love that will result his commitment that will bring about this victory that almost needs a new word to describe it why do we need that well the reason is is because we live our lives in a fallen world and in various ways we don't presently feel that this victory is really secure. 
I think it's true. If you today, in some manner, in the ways we're going to look at today, you are not living in the reality, in the reception of this victory. That you're not confident that it's really as secure as, as God has promised it is for us in Christ. That Paul sees that it is, and that this whole book of Romans has been trying to convince us of that. And so here we are, lacking confidence that this victory, that is a more than conquering victory, is really secure. And because of that, we need passages like this that remind us just how powerful that victory is. If you can hear yourself in any of these fears that I'm going to mention, that come from today's passage, then today's passage has a word for you. Here's some of the fears. We fear those who set themselves against us. You know, maybe you've got someone in your life that you feel they're out to destroy what is good for you. You have an enemy too strong. We fear those who set themselves against us. This passage speaks to that. We fear that God doesn't really have good in mind for us. Maybe today the weakness of your devotion to God's wisdom and his path for your life really lies in the fact that you, you really fear that God doesn't want what's good for you. That his intentions aren't designed for your blessing and benefit. We fear that. We fear that if our sin is fully exposed, God will just cut his losses. Some of you have such secret, hidden things in your life you've never expressed to anyone else maybe even never been willing to talk through deeply in prayer with God, that you believe, like, if that sin got exposed, I mean, even God would just cut his losses on you. Now, we, we can work that out in our mind, but we live from a place of reality that says that's true, and that those sort of fears drive our life in the way that we think about what's going on. We fear that we may out-sin God's grace. Maybe it's not about a past sin, but you feel so weak in the face of things that you're facing and you wonder to really be faithful enough that God would continue to love and bless your life. We fear that our circumstantial suffering means God has already given up on us. Some of you may be in the middle of a deep season of trial, and in that trial you fear that these circumstances are the demonstration that God has already removed his love from you. That his love isn't working out your victory, it's been removed and it's gone. All of these fears surround us, and maybe today you hear some of what's been going on in your own life in some of these fears. Well, I believe today that this passage has a word for you, and we can see it in five different ways. The first way that we see this victory is expressed is we discover in verse 31 that God's protection is supreme. God's protection is supreme. Look closely at the text with me in verse 31. It, it gets really, the first question looks like two in English, but it's all one question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I know it's broken up into two sentences in your English text, but really it's just connecting back to what's already been said in Romans and saying, you know, what can we say to all these things already? Because they mean if God is for us, then who can be against us. This is Paul's rhetorical way of saying God's protection over those who have come to Christ by faith is supreme. So this is the first substantive rhetorical question that gets us started. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Here the rhetorical question is to bring us into the certainty of God's protective power over our lives. We often fear those who are against 
the things that are most important to us. We fear that maybe there's an overwhelming enemy that can bring us down, that those who have set themselves against God may just overrun our lives and somehow we won't be able to experience the blessing of God, the protection of God in our life. We fear when we encounter someone individually. Maybe you have someone in your life right now who seems dead set on harming or destroying us. But Paul has been showing us that part of the benefit of the gospel is that we are brought into a relationship with God where the best effort of any enemy will not only fail to succeed in the end, even if that effort is victorious in its aim, God is capable of simultaneously using it for our good. That's a, that's a beyond victory. God's victory and his wisdom are so amazing that somebody can aim at a particular victory they want to have against us, succeed in it, and still lose at destroying us. That God can take their success and turn it for our good when they meant it for our harm. This is the story that we were talking about of Joseph last week. The doctrine of divine concurrence means that God can purpose and bring to pass different results over the same events that someone else intends for their own destruction in our life. God is capable of, of ruling over even their success in harming us in the ways that they want and turning what they sought to be harmful into our good. The victory of Jesus is so supreme that it appears at first to be the victory of his enemies. Now, how do we know this? See, the gospel brings us into seeing this. Think about what happens in Jesus' life. Jesus comes as the Son of God to walk among us and to display the love of God. But as Jesus walks out his righteous and obedient life, he experiences more and more opposition. Ultimately, we see that that opposition means that people of their own will carried out his own death. That their will was involved in wanting to see him destroyed. And they plotted against him. And, and they were even successful. And Jesus dies on a cross in what looks like defeat. It looks like the accomplishment of those who desired to destroy him has now come to an end. And there in the midst of that moment that looks like defeat and their victory, God is working out his victory on our behalf. If God is for us with that kind of power, then... The answer is it doesn't matter who is against us. Our victory is secure. In the words of the 17th century preacher and theologian Richard Sibbs, he can turn even the thrusts of the enemy's swords into the life-giving works of a surgeon's scalpel. The gospel means that our relationship of favor with God is secured for us. If you have come to trust in Christ, his ministry has been applied to your life, then, then God is for you. It's, it's already determined that right now, God is for you. He's even for you when you are not for yourself. God is for us in Christ. If you've sought refuge in Christ by faith, God is eternally and completely set on your good in your favor. This is the first way we see that the victory makes us more than conquerors. The second one we see is that we discovered that God's plans are good. God's plans are good. Verse 32, the next rhetorical question reasons with us further. It says this, it says, 
in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The logic of the text is powerful. All of us at times struggle to trust that walking in accordance with God's ways is, not, is the best plan. We want to remain in control of what we pursue in life and how we go about securing it. And we're even willing at times to go around God's instruction to secure what we think would be good for us. And it's a way of saying, God, I don't actually trust your ways. I don't trust where you're going. I don't trust your plans, right? We all, we all experience this at times. The text here attacks this really low view of God's plans for us by saying that the proof that God will not withhold his genuine blessing from us is that he has already chosen not to withhold what is most precious to him to secure our salvation. You saw it there. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will that not turn to him taking things that are less valuable to him of his resources and make sure that they are brought about for our blessing? How is it that God would be so committed that he would give the, the, the person most valuable in all of his life his only begotten son for us, but then he would go ahead and quit in the middle of bringing us on to completion? That he would give instructions that aren't intended to tie the, the promise to an end that is ultimately good for us and call us to walk on a path that leads to our victory. You see, God's plans are good, and we know that because he has willingly given up his son, and his son willingly gave up his life. So the gospel gets to the heart of our distrust of God. I mean, the truth is what makes it difficult in obedience is our distrust of God, isn't it? We cynically come to believe that God intends to deprive us. Many people think of spirituality, particularly in terms of deprivation. And we think, man, if I get close to God, and I begin to walk in the wisdom of God's ways, all I'm going to experience is loss. It's going to be all about what I can't do, what I don't have the opportunity to pursue, what I'm limited from. And we think in those terms, don't we? Oh, if, I, if I'm committed to Jesus, I'm going to miss out on all of these other opportunities. But see, what we discover really quickly if we look at the gospel is that God only restricts us from things that are ultimately destructive. And he brings us and invites us into the experience of, uh, of things that are really good that we haven't yet learned to trust him for. That we haven't yet learned to long for, to know our, our, our real heart's desire. And so if that is your understanding of God and your basic belief about Christian spirituality, you're failing to see what the offering of God's Son really means. God has already given of His deepest love in sending Christ the Son to suffer on our behalf. He has not now given up on blessing our lives with His goodness and working out His victory. His invitation to obedience in your life are a path to experience the victory in its fullness. Now there he says in the second phrase, uh, of this verse in verse 32 he says how will he not also with him graciously give us all things now if, if you're the type that underlines or circles in your bible you might want to circle the phrase graciously give us 
circle it or underline it. The Greek word there, charizomai, is the underlying word for graciously give. And, and it really it captures the sense of victory we get to participate in through faith in Christ. It means literally to give favor beyond what is deserved. That actually God's disposition to us, his relationship to us, it bestows favor on us beyond what we deserve. When Paul is talking about us being more than victorious, it means that we experience in Christ a victory and blessing from God that goes way beyond what we have earned or merited. It's a, it's a bit like the star player who hit the winning shot, giving the prize of the limelight to the water boy and bestowing on him the championship ring. God's heart is to give the benefits of his victory in Christ far beyond what we accomplish or deserve. You see, God's plans are good for you. That you would experience that kind of victory, that kind of trust. Well, how do we see a decisive victory? That's two ways. There's a, there's a third way we see in this passage. We see that God's pardon is permanent. Verse 33. Verse 33, we see that God's pardon is permanent. In verse 33, we really enter the courtroom to discover the meaning of the gospel, the meaning of Christ's work for us, to get a sense of what this victory is like. You know, if we think for a moment, we can all imagine a court scene a court case where the defendant seems to be on the way to being acquitted, to being freed. And then evidence comes forth that we were previously unaware of. And it comes to light and the jury is convinced of their guilt. And a quick turn of situation takes place. Victory looked to be at hand, but now it is clear the defendant is guilty and under the condemnation of the law. Well, throughout Romans, Paul has used legal language, the legal language of justification. This is God's legal de declaration of righteousness. Throughout Romans, he's used that legal language to say that through faith in Christ, we have been pardoned because Christ's death on the cross paid the just penalty of our sin that we deserved. The idea is that Jesus has, has met the demands of the law on our behalf, and through faith in him, we are seen as united to Christ, one with him. And he took our sin, and we received his status of faithfulness and righteousness as a gift, not because of what we've earned. So this is the scene in context for what Paul says in verse 33. This is the sense of what he is asking in verse 33. Is there in our life some sin that can yet be exposed, some evidence of our unrighteousness, that when it comes to light, it will overturn God's declaration. You see that there? Verse 33. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now here, elect, we see, is, is this term that's used for God's beginning to end protection of his people, the, the work of salvation in which he's gathered a people to himself. And he says, of these people whom God now in, by faith has declared righteous, if God has declared them righteous, is it possible that there might be some sin exposed in our life or brought to the surface that become aware of that would overturn God's declaration? When we go back to our courtroom, right? You know, 
The reality is, in a human court, that might be possible. It might be possible because of our lack of perspective and wisdom and knowledge that is limited, that a jury might condemn someone or might let someone go free who really ought to be condemned, that a judge might release someone who then we find out later more information. But in the courtroom of God's justice, God knows fully our guilt. He knows all the way to the bottom of it. And so there is no judgment that can remain. There's no charge that could remain that could be brought up that God would say, oh, I didn't know that when I declared they were righteous before me. Even the deepest sin that you've never shared with anyone. Only known to God. You see, the reason is, is God just hasn't brought us into the, this relationship because of our performance. He knew our sin all the way to the bottom. And instead of just overlooking our sin, Jesus, through his death on the cross, paid for all of it even the ones we can hardly mention. So Paul says, who can bring a charge? Is there someone out there who knows something more than God about the depths of your sin? That all of a sudden when it's brought up, his declaration of righteousness would be overturned? He says, no. God's pardon is permanent. If you've trusted Christ, God has declared you forgiven, pardoned, and righteous because of what Jesus has done. And there's no condemnation that remains. That's the third way we see our victory is beyond conquering. The fourth way is we see that God's pledge is personal, verse 34. Verse 34, honestly, if you look at it, it looks like the same question, doesn't it? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? He answers the question. It's God who justifies. God's declaration can't be overturned. Who can condemn? Feels a lot like the same question, doesn't it? But what I want you to see is, is that the way Paul answers that question, the way he, he helps us see that question, takes us from just the legal relationship we have with God to the personal nature of God's concern for us. You see, he answers it differently. In the first question, he answers it by saying, it's already been declared righteous. The legal concern has been done away with. There's no guilt that remains. But see, what we know is that right now in our life, we're incredibly weak. Like if we were to measure it up, we'd say, like, have, have I lived up to this wonderful thing God has done for me? Like right now in the present, like am, I, am I thriving? Am I performing well? Or do I find myself still weak and drawn? For some of the same sins that I struggled with when I began. Do I find myself at times just distraught over the fact that I haven't been able to get my life in order? How does God respond to that? How does he feel? Does he feel like he wasted a pardon on me? And I think some of you are there. You look and you go, man, that's true of me. I, I, I'm hardly a good Christian. <laughs> when I look at it and examine my life, I fail so often, I'm so weak that I'm not even sure it feels good to be mentioned as a Christian. I feel a bit of shame. And so, so he gets inside that experience and he answers the question differently. He says, who is to condemn? Listen to how Christ 
personalizes God's pledge of victory for us. Not just legal, it's not just a judge who said, no, no, we have a personal caretaker. And so he says it this way in verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Who can condemn? Now what he's talking about is right now, right now in your life, at this state, your development, your progress, who can condemn that progress? Well, the reason the answer is no one is because of what Christ is presently doing over your life right now. Christ who knows your weakness fully is doing something other than condemning you. What is he doing? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is presently, he shifts tense, from past, died, raised, to presently at the right hand of God, presently interceding for us. What is Jesus doing for the weak among his people? Well, he's not, the answer is he's not condemning. He's not up there just complaining. Jesus, it says here, it has this ongoing ministry of intercession for us. So, therefore, Jesus who died and was raised is the only one who stands able to condemn, but this Jesus is risen and doing something even now. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father and at this present moment continues his ministry on our behalf interceding. Now, we all know, listen, we all know what a fair weather fan is, right? Everybody knows what that is? It's someone who's supportive of the team only as long as things are going well and quick to condemn those involved as soon as things are going poorly, right? Well, catch what this verse means. It means Jesus sees you right now in your state as you are, unperfected. It may be your worst season spiritually, perhaps because of some trial of your faith. Your faith has been weakened. Perhaps you've given in to temptation in ways that are utterly embarrassing. In fact, if others around you knew just how much you've blown it, they would condemn you and even maybe question the genuineness of your commitment to Christ. If that's a Christian, then being a Christian's a joke. But what is Jesus doing? It says he's interceding. Jesus, the Son, stands before the throne of God the Father, energizing their commitment to be patient, steadfast, and come kindly to your rescue until his victory is fully complete over your life. This is what Jesus is doing presently over our lives. He is standing before the Father, intercepting the condemning voice of others and calling you beloved, expressing sympathy for the pain of your weakness and calling you up to the high calling of faithfulness for the future. And if he is doing that right now, no one else can meaningfully condemn you, not even yourself. You see, through faith in Christ, this is what our relationship of victory looks like. It's not just legal, it's personal to Jesus to bring us on to completion. To care for us in our need to be devoted to us even when we are weak. Well, ultimately, Paul knows we need to hear this. Because whether it's because we've failed in our sin or are suffering under the weight of disappointment or we're feeling the difficult suffering of trials, and loss in this world, it's easy for us to wonder whether this suffering and pain means God has removed his love. In fact, he uses the psalmist's words here in verse 36. 
from Psalms 44 to say, is this your purpose as it is written for your sake? We're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying, you know, this is from the middle of a psalm where the psalmist is saying, we've been faithful yet we're suffering. Is that the point? Is that where we'll be left? God, have you abandoned us? Are you no longer near? Do you not have a future for us? Is the words of the psalmist true? Can something separate us from the love of God in Christ? To which he gives, in verse 37, the resounding no that we began with. No, even in all these things, we are more than conquerors. But notice, we're more than conquerors, not because of our conquering success, but the promise of his success. We're conquerors not through our strength. We're conquerors not because we've managed to get it together. We're not conquerors through our discipline. We're not conquerors because of our church attendance or the family that we grew up in. It says that we're conquerors through Him, that's Jesus Christ, who loved us and has secured us through His death, resurrection, and interceding grace in our life even now. You see, we are more than conquerors is not a statement about us, but a statement about him. Because this is the last thing we see, that that then in that condition, God's perfect love is inseparable from us. Begins in verse 35 and finishes it out. In the text, really what Paul wants to do is he's ramped us up to this is to catalog catalog for us all the possibilities of what might be evidence that God doesn't love us and that his love isn't devoted to working out this victory in our lives. And he says that in all these things, we're receiving from God this decisive victory. The first set that he mentions is in verse 35. When he says, who can separate us from this love? And notice he doesn't just say who, he really starts to ask what. (laughs) Can our own perceptions separate us in the midst of those type of experiences? And he lists them. He says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Since all the things we've said so far are true, are these things evidence of God's removal of love? Well, it goes on in verse 38 and he, when he says, no, absolutely they're not. In fact, they're the very things through which God is bringing his victory into our life and will ultimately cause us to be more than conquerors despite our present experience. And so he says, neither death nor life can do it. Neither angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or depth nor anything else in all of creation that you could set your mind on today or imagine can separate you from this loving commitment that God has to your conquering victory. None of these foes can separate us from God's love for us. It's it's so alive that it is working out our victory even through these things, and we're called to wait by faith until it is finished. And when it is, we will see it as a victory so powerful, we'll need a new word to describe it. More than conquerors.
we haven't just experienced his conquering grace and love. We've experienced far more than we could have ever asked or imagined. That's the kind of victory that is promised us in Christ. Today, that means for some of you, there's only one important question for you to answer. Have I put my faith and trust in God's saving victory through Christ? Like right now, like has, has there been a time in your life where you moved from trusting yourself, you moved from walking in your sin, of trying your own way, following your own plan, to surrendering your life by faith to Jesus Christ? A simple but profound move from this is my life to God, this is yours, and I trust you to work out your victory over my life. And maybe today you would say, you know, I've been thinking about all of these things spiritually, but there's never really been a time in my life where I was willing to turn from my sin and believe that that's the victory that God wants to give. And today, right now, I want to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Because the important thing that we see here is that this victory is promised and this work of God comes to those who trust in Jesus by faith. They're brought into a relationship and experience of God's genuine, inseparable love. And today, I wouldn't want any of you to walk out of here not knowing that that is your relationship with God and that it's freely offered to you by grace far beyond what you could possibly earn. That you would know that your works can't get you into God's favor, but He offers it freely to you in Christ. That you would trust that fully faith today and that from that relationship you would begin to just walk in confidence through the things that you face it's the most important question that you could answer today and we want to help you answer that with sincerity but maybe you're here today and you've been a christian for a while and today what you need to be reminded of is that circumstance in your life whether it be a circumstance that comes from your decisions or one that's been thrust on you by the by the things around you, by others in your life, by trials that you didn't anticipate. And you're in the middle of that circumstance and you believe that it's evidence that God's love has left you. That you would hear these words today and be filled with faith. You would realize that God is devoted to you. That he will hold you fast. That he will secure you when you don't think you can hold on any longer that his pardon means that the pain of your regret can be cleansed dealt with and removed as far as the east is from the west that you can live in freedom and confidence and forgiveness before god that you can trust the plans that he has for you Maybe there's a particular way god's been calling you in your life something you know that god has assigned for you to do and it seems too costly. It seems like it's not born out of his love for you. And you're afraid of it. But today he's inviting you, knowing that his love is inseparable, to take the steps of faith that you need to take. To walk in obedience. To walk out that calling. And know that his love is with you in the midst of that. I don't know what it is that God may be asking you to do to respond today. But I trust that as we go to a time of prayer and as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, that God's Spirit will help you to do that. But I want to encourage you to take this time. As we prepare to come around God's table, we come around as a family together, invited by our Heavenly Father with all of these promises for the future.
We do it knowing that he can work out his victory over our lives. We do it as those who are willing to confess that we will bring ourselves into destruction left to ourselves, but God has invited us to receive the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Christ as a pardon for our sin, and he will keep us to the end. If that's your testimony, we invite you to take the bread and the cup and join us as we gather around God's table. In two weeks, we're going to actually be celebrating baptisms here at Pillar Church. Before you would join us in the testimony that's ongoing week to week of God's faithfulness in the gospel. If you've trusted Jesus and never been baptized, we would encourage you first to be baptized as a step of obedience that says that you want to walk in fellowship with God's people and identify with Christ. You know, it's a command of Jesus that those who have this relationship and bear this testimony would bear it publicly and walk together with a faith family like this. And so if you're in a place where you've never made that step, I want to call you to obedience in Christ. In this moment, as we think of the significance of the Lord's table, it really comes after first us publicly identifying with Jesus through baptism. And so in this moment, we're going to respond to the Lord as we have a moment uh, of worship and preparation for the Lord's Supper. There are elements in the back in a moment when the band comes up and leads us in a song. And after I pray, uh, if you didn't get elements on the way in and you want to participate with us and take in the Lord's Supper, there will be, they're on the table in the back. It'd be perfectly appropriate for you to get up and to go back and to get those and uh, prepare to join us as we gather around this table. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Lord, we're grateful for your kindness over our life and, and as we think about all the ways in which you are conquering in our lives and have promised to, Lord, we ask that you would grant faith and eyes to see the kindness of your love, persistence of your work on our behalf, confident hope of the future that belongs to us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand.